This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. And right now, during our summer fundraiser, which is just about to end at the end of August, you can help support this show and great climate change and sustainability organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time. When you do both, you can receive a free Best of the Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the summer fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, the Tom Hartman Program, Credo Action, The Majority Report, Act Out, The National Sierra Club, Democracy Now!, and The Young Turks. Corporate media talk about trade packs, which have little to do at this point with actual trade, but the coverage is generally pretty thin and vague. Perhaps in part because for corporate media, corporate globalization is simply inevitable. If the horse trading of livelihoods and lives for markets is unseemly, well, let's not try to take too close a look. The leak of a draft of the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, or TTIP, by Greenpeace Netherlands may have thrown a wrench in that deal's inevitability, though media's interpretation of the document's meaning will play a role there. So what's in and what's not in the TTIP, according to these revelations? We're joined now by Karen Hansen-Kuhn, Director of Trade, Technology and Global Governance at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. She joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Karen Hansen-Kuhn. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I think Americans can be forgiven for not being up on another massive deal that will affect our lives, especially when pains are being taken to keep us from knowing about it, really. So what do we learn from these documents that Greenpeace Netherlands received from an unknown source and have now released? Well, it was a big release. They released something like 200 pages of what's called consolidated text. So that shows both the U.S. position, the EU position, and areas where they've agreed on a number of chapters. It doesn't include everything, but it includes a lot of the issues that we're looking at. I mean, what's significant about the leak in part is, I mean, this sounds crazy, but this is the first time we actually know what the U.S. wants out of this deal. There's been a steady flow of leaks from the European Union. They have actually published a lot of their position papers, and the U.S. has not. So a lot of the analysis we've been doing up to now has been based on what Europe said they want out of this agreement. And for the first time, we're getting more evidence of what the U.S. is pushing for. And what is the U.S. pushing for? Well, it's funny. One of the issues we've been focusing on is around agricultural exports to Europe. You know, as you said in the intro, tariffs are already pretty low. A lot of this isn't really even about trade. It's about rules. It's about changing regulations on both sides of the Atlantic so corporations can buy and sell wherever they want. And so one of the big agenda items for the U.S. is to be able to export GMOs and other biotechnology products to Europe. There's also a big push to allow for beef produced with hormones, chicken rinsed in chlorine practices that aren't allowed in Europe. In the chapter on food safety, what they call sanitary and phytosanitary standards, there is information about speeding up or proposals about speeding up the approval process in Europe, about using science that is 
the same language they've used in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, science that is, in many cases, data provided by industry to justify new rules. So we have the U.S. asking Europe to give up a lot on their food safety standards, their, their agricultural standards. Europe is asking the U.S. to give up a lot on public procurement. So that's different kinds of projects that are contracted out, publicly funded programs like farm-to-school programs, highway construction. Europe would like their companies to be able to bid on any of those contracts with no bilocal provisions, no minority or, or small business set-asides. Also, Europe wants to free up exports of liquefied natural gas, which could mean more fracking in the U.S. But I do want to say I think it would be a mistake to think that that's the whole story. Both sides are pushing really hard for new protections for investment. There's been a lot of discussion lately about this investor-state dispute settlement provision. Right. So that allows companies to sue governments over rules that affect their profits. So we have TransCanada suing the U.S. over the Keystone Pipeline decision. For example, both sides want to get that kind of provision in the trade agreement, which could mean a lot more lawsuits like that. Both sides want to include something we haven't seen before much in trade agreements, what's called regulatory cooperation. So basically establishing a lot of new roadblocks to new rules, any kind of new rule on, say, food safety or toxic chemicals or what have you, would have to go through this whole obstacle course of different cost-benefit analyses and different things that would slow down new rules. So really, you know, while there are particular interests that the U.S. has versus what Europe has, overall, this is a corporate agenda, and that's really what's driving the process. Well, let me just ask you simply, how is this not trading away sovereignty. I have heard the ISDS, that investor state dispute settlement, I've heard that kind of laughed off. I've heard pundits say, oh, no, you know, we can still make domestic rules about pollution, for example. Other countries won't be able to overturn our laws. Well, other countries maybe not, but transnational corporations, it sounds like, would or at least would have standing to do that. Is that not a threat to sovereignty? Oh, it's absolutely a threat. And, you know, we haven't been hearing as much in the United States about TTIP, the transatlantic deal, in part because there's been so much focus on the TPP. But this is headline news in Europe. There have been massive demonstrations, particularly in Germany, Austria, and France. And a lot of it does focus on this investor state provision. And in Germany, a lot of it was sparked by... Germany decided to phase out nuclear power, and so a Swedish firm is suing them for $5 billion. So that is absolutely a threat to their sovereignty, and it's something that has had hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets. Just this week, the president of France said, you know, if this is what the agreement is, we can't sign on to this. And the lead negotiator said maybe the talks would be suspended. So it has been big news in Europe. I think we need more of a focus in the U.S. too, but certainly it's absolutely a threat to sovereignty. 
How can it, though, be a surprise to global leaders? Are they not aware that this is what these trade deals do? I mean, I don't think in a, it's really a shock. The details, of course, are horrifying in their specifics, but the general thrust of it is not a shock to activists who've been doing this work for years. Why are national leaders is it a pretense that they that they are surprised by it? I'm not quite clear what's going on with that. Well, I would say there's two pieces to that. First of all, they are reacting because there is such a massive public outcry. So they're reacting to what their populations are concerned about. On the other hand, I think since the beginning of these talks, Europe has said, I mean, I've talked to agriculture ministers, for example, in Europe, and they say really consistently, no hormone beef, no chlorine chicken, no GMOs. Now say this in public statements, and then two weeks later, someone from the U.S. government would say, this is absolutely on the agenda. So it's going back and forth. You know, we are in the process of negotiations, and while a lot of what's in the text is shocking, it's still under negotiation. I don't think they're surprised. I mean, these issues have been on the table since the beginning. I suspect what is a surprise is just the, the degree of public reaction in Europe. Well, let's continue with that because it's somewhat irritating in a way to hear the New York Times say on May 2nd, after decades of free trade orthodoxy, there's been growing resistance to further liberalizing the movement of goods, services, capital and labor. It sounds as though activism has sprung out of nowhere on this issue when in fact, even in the United States, we've had decades of of work, have we not, of of understanding what these uh, corporate-centric trade packs do and of resisting them. Oh, absolutely. When this big leak came out, it made me think back to the free trade area of the Americas. Those texts were published. That was going to be a massive free trade agreement in all of the Americas, North and South America, and it was defeated because of activism throughout the hemisphere. Certainly, there have been big fights on each of the trade agreements. And just last summer, the approval process for fast tracks, the process that Congress uses to debate these trade agreements, was hugely controversial. So I think there's more public opposition. We see it more Mm -hmm. than perhaps in the last few years. But absolutely, this has been going on for a long time. Say we hear that the, the pact actually has been scuttled. Is that the end of the story? No, certainly not. I mean, of course, There is the other big trade agreement on the horizon, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which could be coming up for a vote sometime this year or perhaps next year. So there's absolutely that. But even if we were to defeat both of them, there are still these issues of corporate control over our food systems, over our economies, and we need to keep pushing for alternatives. We've been speaking with Karen Hansen-Kuhn of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. You can find their work online at iatp.org. Karen Hansen-Kuhn, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Welcome back to the program. 
Thank you, Tom. It's always great to have you with us. Um, I understand that there is a new study out about the TPP. I've had a number of people um, over the last month or so say to me, yeah, that TPP thing, I mean, even, even uh, Secretary Clinton is opposed to it now, it's dead. And I keep saying, no, no, I think, you know, uh, the night before Thanksgiving or the night before Christmas, it's uh, Congress is going to slip this thing through. I've, what's your opinion? Well, I think there is real peril that there'll be a push to pass the agreement after the election, like you said, in, the la in a lame duck session of Congress, where those who have decided to retire and those who've just lost their elections will be all thinking about their next job, maybe in corporate America, and they'll still be empowered to vote, but they won't be at all accountable right. to their constituents. Right now, they don't quite have the votes to pass it, despite all of the push. But post-election, who knows? Yeah, I, that's an excellent, excellent point. So tell me about this new study on the TPP. Well, this new study is something all of us who need to make sure they don't have the votes post-election, which I just... Before talking about this grim study, I want to make the point it's totally doable to stop the TPP. This is a winnable fight, and it will make an enormous difference for all of our futures. Every single one of us needs to regularly be in contact with our House of Representatives matter. This fight is going to actually be in the House, not the Senate. Both the House and the Senate have to vote, but the real knockdown dragout is in the House. It's where they don't have the votes. And it's Democrats and Republicans, because if folks recall, it was only a five-vote margin that passed fast track. So all we need to do is get a handful of Democrats and Republicans in the House who have buyer's remorse for letting the president have this authority to finish what has been a TPP that, as you're pointing out, this new report shows is really, really bad. Mm. So, so the history of these reports. So, so first of all, this is a report uh, from the ITC. This is the, the U.S. Uh, International Trade Commission, which is supposed to be promoting the TPP. Do I have that right? Well, here's the history of these reports. The, the, the fast track statute requires the United States International Trade Commission, a sort of independent, ostensibly independent agency that's supposed to do an analysis of every trade agreement and deliver it to Congress right. 100 days after the text is final. The problem is the USITC has, for the last several decades, been a cheerleader for the agreements, mm. even though that's not their statutory remit. That's the reality. And moreover, they have systematically used a methodology for doing their studies that has resulted, because it has, because by the way, it has crazy assumptions, like the trade balance stays consistent. There's no increase in income inequality. The level of employment in the U.S. stays constant despite the trade agreement, i.e. it assumes all the things that have been the opposite of what happens under trade agreements. Right. It then runs data and tries to project what we could expect from a trade agreement. And on our website, shortcut to get there is tradewatch.org, just good old tradewatch.org. Mm -hmm. You can see, uh, you can see all the projections for all the big trade agreements, NAFTA, China trade, the Korea agreement. And they're not just wrong by degree. They don't just kind of overstate the benefits. They're wrong in direction. So we're going to get rid of our trade deficit with the NAFTA countries. Uh, no, it got 10 times bigger. We're going to see a reduction in our trade deficit with China. No, it got actually 80 times bigger. You, you, time after time, they're wrong. So here's what's scary. 
Did you did you get a chance to eyeball some of what was in that ITC study? Well, I, I've read your press releases and your summaries of it, and and uh, over the last uh, two weeks there have been several actually, uh, you know, th that I've gotten from you all. Uh, the, but but no, go ahead. Tell us well, here here's the here's the thing because I'm always interested in how other people read it because. You know, Tom, you've been following these trade agreements. You've seen these Pollyannish, very optimistic projections. Sure. And then the outcome is just catastrophic, job right. loss, wages down, et cetera. Right. So here is an ITC study that even though it used the pie-in-the-sky methodology with all the ridiculous assumptions, it actually comes out saying that we're going to have a worse trade balance in 16 out of the 25 U.S. agriculture services and manufacturing sectors they decided to feature in the study hmm. that we're going to increase our trade deficit. So, and so the good news is things going are going to get worse. Decline in our service sector surplus. That's the one thing that usually is the winner. Right. And the only upside is by the year of 2032, when you and I will be, be both be considerably older, we can expect to gain in U.S. GNP, U.S. growth, that is, wait for it, 15 of 100th of 1%, i.e. 0.15. And to put this in perspective, what this means practically, wow. in 2032 in January, we'll have, the country will be as wealthy with PPP as we would be on February 15th without it. Right. <laughs> Right. And so in trying to sell this deal, they're, they're telling us it's a bad deal. Is anybody paying attention? Well, here's what's so disgusting. They actually held this report, which by statute had to be delivered tomorrow. They, sorry, delivered yesterday. They held it until 5 o'clock at night. Then the trade representative, it's an 800-page study, trade representative did a news conference by phone saying, here's what's in it, and right. just made up stuff. And a lot of the coverage actually though it did say that the, the upsides are very modest, missed the real story, which is this is the most negative government projection in any trade agreement in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And given they always overstate them, mm -hmm. if they say it's pretty bad with very little upside, it's going to be catastrophic, but the coverage is missing it. So they want to use this to try and push the agreement. The good news is actually... There's very little in there to sell. The bad news is the way they manipulated the release. That story is not getting out right now. Right, right. This is this is this is tragic, and and this is uh, transpartisan. By the way, you've got Republican. You know, Donald Trump came out against this. Hillary Clinton is opposed to it. Bernie Sanders is opposed. To it. It's right across the board. Everybody's opposed to this thing. You know, and yet it's being it's being pushed. It's being pushed largely by Republicans in the House. Do I have that right? You know, what's interesting is actually it is the White House that is a big pusher of it. And right now, the Republicans are basically trying to extract even more bad stuff for the tobacco industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the financial services and Wall Street folks. And so they haven't all been cheerleading it just yet. They're basically saying, if you do these few extra things, Obama, then we'll help you pass it. Oh. And that, that's the Republican leaders. But you are spot on that there are big blocks of Republican House members who aren't the leaders and lots of Democrat House members who are against. And, and folks, when I say, because I'm up here, I can see the Capitol from my window right now as I'm talking to you. We're counting these votes all day, every day. We are within spitting distance of an incredible power of people over corporations. 
because Tom, who's pushing it, is this motley crew of corporate interests all combined from big pharma and agribusiness guys to the oil and gas and mining guys to the Kmarts and other mega retailers. And they're all connected in with the big content guys, so the guys who want to make our, our internet more expensive and and harder to use. And they're hooked up with the chemical industry. You basically, all the chronic job offshoring, big companies like GE, they're all pushing it. And they're kind of beside themselves right now because hmm. this report was not their usual panacea of happiness for a trade agreement. Yeah. Well, that's... And they know the public hates it. Democrats and Republicans alike. So we can win and they know it. we still got work to do. America shouldn't be signing lousy trade deals, period. Which is why I wanted to thank Credo members for keeping up the pressure to stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. So what is this fight all about? Supporters of the TPP want you to believe this deal is about America's role in setting the rules of international trade. But here's the problem. TPP isn't about helping American workers set the rules. It's about letting giant corporations rig the rules on everything from patent protection to food safety standards, all to benefit themselves. Now, the first clue about who benefits from TPP is who actually wrote it. During the top secret drafting process, 28 trade advisory committees were formed to whisper in the ear of our trade negotiators. Who sat on those committees? 85% were senior corporate executives or industry lobbyists. And many of the committees, including those on chemicals and pharmaceuticals, aerospace equipment, textiles and clothing, and financial services, were 100% industry representatives. In more than half of all the advisory committees, no one, not one single person, was in the room who represented American workers or American consumers. You know, a rigged process produces a rigged outcome. Take a look at the Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. I, I know, sounds wonky, but this is the part that gives a huge boost to big multinational companies when they want to challenge a country's laws that they just don't like. Usually, they would have to go to a court. But with TPP, they can skip the courts and use industry-friendly arbitration panels staffed with corporate lawyers. And here's the deal. Whatever those panels say goes. No appeals anywhere. These fines can cost a country billions of dollars. And some countries will just back down and change their regulations instead of fighting back. Workers, environmentalists, human rights advocates, they don't get to use ISDS. It's only the big corporations that do. Now that is a rigged system. This isn't just speculation. This is real. 
Last year, a mining company won an ISDS case when Canada said the company couldn't blast off the coast of Nova Scotia. And now, today, taxpayers in Canada are on the hook for up to $300 million, all because their government tried to protect its environment and the livelihood of its local fishermen. ISDS is also a problem right here at home. Thanks to the hard work of progressive organizations like Creda, President Obama said no to the Keystone XL pipeline last year. Great work. It was a long fight, it was a hard fight, but the Obama administration, applying American law, decided that the pipeline was a threat to our air, to our water, and to our climate. So what's happened? Well, now the Canadian corporation that wants to build this pipeline is using the ISDS provision in NAFTA to demand more than $15 billion in damages from the U.S. For what? For turning down the Keystone Pipeline. Look, everyone understands the risks of ISDS, even the people who wrote TPP. In fact, people got so worried about tobacco companies using ISDS that the TPP negotiators decided to say that tobacco companies can't use ISDS to roll back anti-smoking regulations. And look, I am really glad they did that. But it's pretty much an admission that ISDS can be used to weaken other public health laws. Think about it. What about food safety laws or drug safety laws or worker safety laws or environmental safety laws or any other regulations that are designed to protect our citizens? It will be open season on laws that make people safer but that cut into corporate profits. So here's the bottom line. Congress will have to vote straight up or down on TPP. No amendments, no chance to strip out things like ISDS. And that's why I'm counting on Credo members like you to help me fight to stop the TPP over the next few months. We're going to need your voices now more than ever. You can count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. And I know when I need it, I can count on you like four, three, two, and you'll be Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club delivers amazing razors right to your door for a third of the price of what the greedy razor corporations charge, which means you can shave with a fresh blade anytime you want. They also have great shaving products like Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. This shave butter isn't your average shaving cream. It's a unique conditioning formula with high-quality natural ingredients, leaving your skin unbelievably soft and smooth. So when you use their executive razor with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides for the smoothest shave ever. Now is a great time to join the Dollar Shave Club. New members who buy a tube of shave butter get a month of their executive razor blades for free. Take advantage of this special offer today. It's available by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. You can count on me. There's another paradox, too. I mean, I think we're missing out on this opportunity for for Clinton to make a broad ideological argument, tie Trump in as the instead of like a an aberration for the uh, for the um, 
uh, aberration for the uh, Republican Party. He is indicative of the Republican Party. Instead of making that argument, she's um, she's she's saying he's, you know, uh, uh, sui generis, as they say. Uh, And um, but simultaneously, not just what's happening in the states. She gives a speech yesterday, which is, you know, if you had told me that she is going to hit these points at in August of the general election, I wouldn't, you know, two years ago, let's say, okay, before I knew that Bernie Sanders was existed, you know, as a candidate, before I knew that Donald Trump was going to be a candidate. If you were to tell me that Hillary Clinton would go out there, be forceful and specific. I mean, let's listen to just uh, forceful and specific on debt-free college for, I mean, free college, free college for people uh, who are of, uh, you know, 125,000 households, $125,000 and lower, Um, you know, coming out for uh, raising the minimum wage, all the parental leave and, 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 and whatnot, but coming out forcefully against the TPP. And, and I didn't know anything else. I would have been like, Cliff, do you you know what you got to get yourself you got to check yourself into a hospital right now because you're insane that's crazy and listen to what she said about the uh the tpp uh yesterday this is her uh speech in detroit it was a long litany of you know pretty people can say like i don't believe she's going to do any of this all right well good enough but i'm saying in terms of rhetorical this is a long list a very progressive um, policy she's laying out there. So we have a non-ideological campaign where she is trying to, she's not holding the Republicans responsible for, uh, for, for Donald Trump, but on a day-to-day level, there's no grand ideological scheme here, but the policy set are pretty mm-hmm. progressive. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I don't, I, I just, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. Here she is we'll on the TPP. I'll have a comment after that. All right. I, here's I the TPP uh, segment right now. The answer is to finally make trade work for us, not against us. So my message, my message to every worker in Michigan and across America is this. I will stop any trade deal that kills jobs or holds down wages, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I oppose it now. I'll oppose it after the election and I'll oppose it as president. And so, I mean, the after the election refers to the lame duck. And then in response today, um, the Obama administration, basically as part of the fast track authority, um, mm-hmm. put Congress on notice that it's going to be sending lawmakers a bill to imp- uh, to implement the TPP. That is a the, it's a submission of the draft of statement of administrative administration action, which establishes the 30 day minimum. So that's part of the the fast track. We give you notice. It's a 30 day minimum that we give you notice that we're going to try and put this through. They're going to aim obviously for the lame duck session. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if Clinton responds to this. It's going to be interesting to see what happens now. Um, and, yeah. and I don't think she's going to get in a big fight with the president of her own party who's supporting her. That's the thing. I mean, we'll have to see what she does, but she can stand up and say in generic terms that she'll oppose it without like showing up to man the barricades. You know what I mean? Right. And um, the question and, is, that may affect certain congressional, the, obviously yes. that gives cover to certain members of Congress to, to oppose it. There are um, 28 house Democrats who supported fast track 
And for the um, for the House to pass this, um, Ryan is going to need those 28. And when Clinton comes out and says she's against it, right, it sort of like unshackles them to vote against the president. Now that's I'm- the key thing there. So that's the key thing, first of all. But second of all, and, and you know, this is again an argument I've been making for a while, and I think this is based on history, at least my understanding of it, which is um, there have been a lot of Democratic presidents, and we don't always know what their true feelings are. You know what I mean? I mean, if, you know, sometimes they evolve in different directions. You could say they devolve. It really depends what you think. But it's always the culture out there surrounding them. Where the, where the strength is on various issues and movements overall in the party that determines really what happened. They can read polls. You know what I mean? And, and that's why I've always kind of, my point about Hillary Clinton has always been, there are a lot of people who said she was the, the person, you know, people I know that worked in the Clinton administration, progressives who said she was to the left on most of the issues. There are other people who certainly in the years since have said she's moved a lot to the right. The thing is, is that is that if she's up there saying these things now, she's realizing, A, she needs to do this to keep her coalition together. B, most of these things are very popular even beyond the Democratic Party. She gets it in a way that Obama didn't and maybe shouldn't have as much because, look, there wasn't a movement against against other trade you know trade in the past the way there is against TPP there wasn't a movement you know demanding overtime and and a, a minimum wage increase there was but not with the strength it has now or increasing social security or any number of issues the le- I mean you know we've seen what's happened the DLC is dead right they've all gone over and I guess they've got, they've changed their resumes to third way but it's they used to have multiple of these sort of centricy organizations and most of them are gone yep. and most of their senators are gone too gone going gone everything gone give a damn gone be the birds when they don't want to sing gone people all awkward with their thing gone look at you out to make a deal you try to be appealing but you lose your appeal what about those shoes you're in today? They'll do no good on the bridges you burnt along the way. In the past few weeks, coalition organizations across the EU have staged protests against TTIP as talks move forward and heads of state pressured or were pressured to lay down some ink, effectively welcoming all the bad U.S. ideas on everything from GMOs to environmental regulation into the EU, backed by corporate tribunals, ensuring that no European country could regulate against the interests of big multinational corporations. And that pissed people off plenty, even with EU commissioners promising that no trade deal could possibly threaten the EU's far stricter public health and environmental regulations. In fact, lawmakers were already starting to distance themselves from the toxic trade deal when along came the Greenpeace leaks. Last Monday, Greenpeace leaked documents that confirmed many Europeans' fears that TTIP is indeed only concerned with profit. Not at all with people or planet. The leaks also show that Uncle Sam would have the power to strong-arm the EU out of some of those common-sense regulations because money and because America. 
In that same vein, TTIP threatens to scrap existing regulation, such as the General Exceptions Rule, a 70-year-old regulation that ensures that cross-border trade deals are regulated in a manner that protects human, animal, and plant life, while preventing overconsumption of valuable natural resources. Makes sense. But another minor detail that's missing is the precautionary principle, a uniquely EU common-sense regulation, once again, that requires risk analysis and policy intervention to be used in building a framework for environmental protection. In other words, without this precautionary principle, EU will open its borders to hazardous chemicals, GMOs, and really anything else that could damage human, plant, or animal life, while simultaneously resulting in a pretty profit for the asshat tycoons on high. The leaks also contain language such as market access for industrial goods and regulatory cooperation. Those basically translate to shut up, fuck you, import some damn coal, tar sands, methane, gas, and oil, and stop complaining. These points and plenty others have only lit an even hotter fire under the already raging protests against TTIP. And following the leaks, French President François Hollande announced that he would reject TTIP as it stands because it goes against essential principles of the French way of life. And to be fair, far be it from me to suggest that you take a president at his word, but also realize that he wouldn't at all be up there saying this shit if it weren't for the tremendous show of people power. As Owen Jones wrote last week in his op-ed piece, European politicians and bureaucrats, quite rightly, would never have imagined that a trade agreement would inspire any interest, let alone mass protests. Symptomatic of their contempt for the people they supposedly exist to serve, the negotiations over the most important aspects of the treaty were conducted in secret. But rather than give up, activists across the continent organized. They toxified TTIP, forcing its designers on the defensive. Germany, the very heart of the European project, witnessed mass demonstrations with up to 250,000 people participating. From London to Warsaw, from Prague to Madrid, the anti-TTIP cause has marched. Members of the European Parliament have been subjected to passionate lobbying by angry citizens. Without this popular pressure, TTIP would have received little scrutiny and would surely have passed with disastrous consequences. But as of right now, TTIP talks are stalled. EU lawmakers continue to shift uncomfortably in their thrones, and the people remain fucking pissed off. And the path from a shoe-in trade deal to a corporate coup on the rocks was certainly not paved by armchair apathetics, waving away resistance. It was paved by fucking hard work and determination. And the road is far from finished. In the coming months, those Europeans who have campaigned against TTIP should surely reach out to their American counterparts. Even if TTIP is defeated, we still live in a world in which major corporations often have greater power than nation-states. Only organized movements that cross borders can have any hope of challenging this unaccountable dominance. From tax justice to climate change, the protest never achieves anything, Brigade, have been proved wrong. Here's a potential victory to relish and build on. Couldn't, wouldn't, and didn't say it better myself, Owen, but allow me to expound on this call. Flush the TPP has been a powerful force in the U.S. fight against TPP and indeed other trade deals, trade deals such as TTIP, and they are currently focused on the lame duck session, i.e. the session of Congress after the November elections, but before 
the new Congress comes in in January. The reason for this is that accountability to voters, even more than usual, is at all-time lows during those few months. Members that are are out still have a few months to fuck with things. Those that are in can take solace in knowing that we the people don't care and don't pay any attention after we've been inconvenienced with this whole pesky voting thing and now need a few months to just rest and recuperate. That plus the fact that we have the memories of advanced Alzheimer's patients when it comes to political track records. So really, any decisions that are made at the beginning of a two- to certainly six-year term are unlikely to pose a threat when re-election time comes. So, given this climate of free-for-all governance, proponents of the TPP are way in favor of putting it up for a vote during the lame-duck session. And having keyed in on this, Flush the TPP has already begun to plan actions against a lame-duck TPP vote. Protests will take place in D.C. and across the country. So in order to stay tuned and get involved, visit flushthetpp.org slash no lame duck. alone this time will not get it done because the people united will get it done the powerful movement to protect our climate and keep dirty fuels in the ground has won important victories recently protecting the atlantic coast from offshore drilling and pushing shell to pull out of the arctic halting new coal leasing on u.s public lands banning fracking in new york and rejecting the keystone xl pipeline but two trade deals, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, threaten climate progress. These two trade deals, if approved by Congress, would empower thousands of corporations to go outside of our court system and challenge U.S. restrictions on coal, oil, and gas. This threat is real. Using similar rules under NAFTA, TransCanada is demanding $15 billion from the U.S., over the rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline. To protect our communities and climate, we need to restrict oil and gas drilling both on and off our shores, fracking on our public lands, liquefied natural gas terminals on our coasts, refineries in our cities, and fossil fuel pipelines and oil trains across the country. The movement to keep dirty fuels in the ground and stop toxic trade deals is unstoppable. We won't let bad trade deals undermine our hard-won victories on climate. Today's episode is also sponsored by Magoosh. There's a lot to complain about about standardized tests, but now at least Magoosh is here to take some of the sting out of prepping for them. Instead of lugging around books and flashcards, Magoosh offers affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online, so you can log in anytime, anywhere on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. Whether it's for college admissions or graduate-level exams, they have you covered. They provide online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT. 
SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. And they even offer friendly email help from their team of expert tutors for when you get stuck on a problem or concept. Their test prep program starts at under $100 and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. So join the 1.5 million students who have already chosen Magoosh. Go to magoosh.com. That's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now and get 20% off with the code LEFT at checkout. Thanks to Magoosh for their support. Prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. Well, Hillary Clinton has announced former Interior Secretary Ken Salazar as the head of her transition team. Salazar is a former United States senator from Colorado who now works at William Hale, one of the most influential lobbying firms in Washington. Some groups have criticized Salazar's election due to, or his selection due to his vocal support of the fra- of fracking, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, and the Keystone XL pipeline. Molly Derzensky of Greenpeace USA said if Clinton uh, plans to effectively tackle climate change. The last thing her team needs is an industry insider like Ken Salazar. Salazar's track record illustrates time and again that he's on the side of big industry and not of the people. His most recent opposition to the anti-fracking initiatives in his home state of Colorado directly undermines Clinton's alleged support of local control over fracking. In addition to Ken Salazar, other leaders of the transition team include former Obama National Security Advisor Tom Donilon, Center for American Progress head Neera Tandon, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, and Maggie Williams, the director of Harvard's Institute of Politics. For more, we're joined by David Sirota, senior editor for investigations at the International Business Times, joining us from Denver Open Media in Denver, Colorado, the home state of Ken Salazar. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now!, David. Um, well, start off by talking about the selection of the former interior secretary, former Colorado senator Ken Salazar, to head the transition team of Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Clinton campaign announced this uh, in the last uh, 36 hours. Uh, Ken Salazar will head the team that would, if Hillary Clinton is elected, would help build the administration. Uh, it's an important uh, appointment uh, because if many people believe that personnel is policy uh, and, and the people who are going to run the transition team are going to be looking at uh, thousands, potentially, of appointments across the federal government uh, in a prospective uh, Hillary Clinton administration. So who is at the top of this transition team, uh, what their beliefs are, what their politics have been, uh, is very important to understanding uh, what may be coming in a Clinton administration uh, policy-wise and whether the, those policies in a Clinton administration will reflect the policy promises from Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. Well, as we mentioned, for years, Ken Salazar has been a vocal proponent of fracking. In 2014, he said, quote, we know that from everything we've seen, there's not a single case where hydraulic fracking has created an environmental problem for anyone. We need to make sure that story is told. And this is Ken Salazar speaking about fracking in 2011 when he was still interior secretary. I think hydraulic fracking is very much a necessary part of the future of natural gas. Uh, because without this new technology, the amount of natural gas that we have available here in the country is a very diminished amount. And I think hydraulic fracking can be done in a safe way, 
in an environmentally responsible way and in a way that doesn't create all of the concerns that it's creating across the country right now. Uh, Dave Sirota, what about this, uh, his position on fracking? Well, I mean, you, you've heard it there. I mean, Ken Salazar comes from Colorado and a, and a part of the Colorado political establishment uh, that supports fracking in a very aggressive way. The business community here supports the supports fracking in a, in a very uh, aggressive way. Uh, we've had fights at the at the local level where uh, cities and towns have voted to ban or restrict fracking, and the state government has tried to use its power to effectively uh, disenfranchise those communities from using that power to to, to block or restrict fracking. There's now a ballot measure on the ballot uh, to further restrict uh, fracking. Uh, Ken Salazar has has come out against that, been one of the icons in the political establishment against that. So he is somebody who is very close to the oil and gas industry uh, and somebody who has been a big defender of fracking in the face of evidence that there are reasons to be concerned about the environmental and public health effects of that process. Can you talk about who Wilmer Hale, the most influential, one of the most influential lobbying firms in Washington, who Ken Salazar works for, um, who else they represent? Yeah, they, they represent corporate clients across the board. A Cigna, for instance, uh, Cigna is a healthcare giant that is fighting for uh, a merger with Anthem. Uh, Wilmer Hale represents them. Delta Airlines, uh, Verizon, uh, investment firms, uh, a mining uh, company. So Wilmer Hale is a, is a major law and lobbying firm. Uh, Ken Salazar is not a registered lobbyist at Wilmer Hale. He is a partner there. Uh, interestingly enough, Hillary Clinton uh, had published a year ago an op-ed, uh, deriding the revolving door where lawmakers leave office and become uh, lobbyists or, or, or help special interests. And she had specifically said that she was concerned about lawmakers who go into that line of work, public policy work for corporate clients, but do not register as a lobbyist, which seems to fit the description of Ken Salazar. And also the, uh, the other appointees seem to be largely either f former Obama officials or close confidants of, of Hillary Clinton on the, the top transition team. Your sense of this sort of uh, lack of an open tent in terms of creating a transition team that would uh, win support of other Americans? Well, I, look, Hillary Clinton campaigned as a progressive, increasingly so facing the primary challenge from Bernie Sanders. Uh, and so I think there was some hope by, by folks that, uh, that, that her transition team and her administration will reflect something that's a, a little bit uh, different from what people have come to believe is Clintonism uh, and, and more progressive, perhaps, than the Obama administration. This transition team seems to suggest more of, a, of continuity with the establishment, that the people who who primarily are leading this are people who come out of the Obama administration, come out of the wing of the Democratic Party that is close to uh, the business community uh, that is generally understood to be the establishment. So it, we haven't seen the policy yet, but if personnel is policy, this looks like a signal uh, to the establishment that, that this is a continuity kind of government that's going to be put out there, David not necessarily Sirota. one that... Let me ask you, uh, last November, Ken Salazar, along with another former Interior Secretary, Bruce Babbitt, co-wrote a piece in USA Today backing the TPP. They wrote, quote, the TPP is a strong trade deal that will level the playing field for workers <clears throat> to help middle-class families get ahead. It's also the greenest trade deal ever. Those are the words of, well, Ken Salazar, the new transition team head for Hillary Clinton. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a very important op-ed to, 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 for people to understand uh, right now, especially when there are fears that Hillary Clinton will ultimately back a version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, if she becomes president. She has said she is against it, uh, but prior to running for president, uh, she had been helping the Obama administration push that trade deal. And so her transition chief is somebody who has been very publicly out there since leaving government, pushing that deal uh, on environmental grounds. Of course, in that deal, there are provisions that may make it easier for America to export fracked gas across the across the globe. So there, this, I think, complicates the questions of where Hillary Clinton and her administration may be on trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In 2014, Ken Salazar also pushed for the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, telling the Associated Press he believed construction could, quote, be done in a way that creates a win-win for energy and the environment. David Sirota. Yeah, I, I mean, again, what we're what we see from Ken Salazar's record is somebody who is very close to to big energy interests uh, in uh, that have business before the federal government. Uh, what does it mean for the future when another pipeline proposal, for instance, comes down the pike? We don't know, but what we do know is that he will have a very serious hand in helping staff the Clinton administration. That that he will have a, a hand in helping. Uh, put personnel into the administration across the federal government. Uh, whether he has litmus tests, whether he brings in people who he's close to from his own politics, that will be a question. It'll be a big question for Hillary Clinton. David, you've written a lot about the Clinton Foundation. <clears throat> now, a lot of the news this week centers around the emails of Hillary Clinton. The State Department has agreed to provide the conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch with emails that had been uncovered following the FBI's probe into Hillary Clinton's use of the private email server from 2009 to 2013, her tenure as Secretary of State. And we know some of these emails relate to the Clinton Foundation. Can you talk about the significance? significance of this. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that the connections between the potential connections between the State Department and the Clinton Foundation, uh, they have been uh, relatively well documented uh, in the lead up to uh, this question about specific emails. Look, we know that money from foreign governments was going into the Clinton Foundation at a time that Hillary Clinton was America's top diplomat. For instance, at a time when Hillary Clinton's State Department was approving weapons deals uh, for many of those foreign governments. Uh, we know that companies were paying uh, Bill Clinton speaking fees at the same time that they were lobbying the State Department. Uh, we know that other interests, other corporate interests, were giving to the foundation when they had business with and or were lobbying the State Department. The emails will provide potentially a more a granular uh, detailing of potential connections between the State Department and the Clinton Foundation. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, uh, the Clinton Clinton campaign has argued that there was no quid pro quo. Uh, will there be a smoking gun email? It's hard to say. But what do we know that money went into the Clinton Foundation uh, from interests uh, that had business before the State Department? Absolutely. And I think that is the fundamental that is the fundamental issue at play here. We're half awake in a fake empire. We're half awake in a fake Empire. 
I'm sure you've heard of the Trans-Pacific Partnership at this point. It's the international trade agreement that Bernie was against and then Hillary was for, calling it the gold standard of trade before changing her mind and then coming out against it. And President Obama was always in favor of it, and now he says he's going to pass it during the lame duck session after the election. And Donald Trump, well, Donald Trump is against it, but he probably doesn't really know what it is. He said he's going to renegotiate it, though. And it's not surprising why so many people are confused by this, because the details of this trade agreement are very complicated. So let's try to make it as simple as possible. Now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a trade deal between Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, the US, and Vietnam, with six other nations looking to join. And it's crazy because these nations together account for more than 40% of the world's trade. But in short, the TPP creates basic standards and rules governing trade that all member nations must abide by. And the TPP has the backing of many powerful corporations, as well as the corporatist politicians they financially support. And it would also require nations with previously closed economies to liberalize. And its provisions on labor organizing, for example, require nations to allow workers to unionize for more rights and better treatment. That sounds great. And the TPP will also create a network and a framework for expanding and enforcing existing international environmental protection agreements. Also, there are clear benefits to removing tariffs in general and other barriers that restrict global trade. The TPP would expand American trade opportunities with participating countries and lead to greater efficiency, lower costs, an increased variety for consumers, and a growth in the GDP. A growth that experts estimate could be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, with smaller and developing economies benefiting from this the most. Also, by raising regulatory rules and standards for many of China's key trading partners, the TPP would minimize China's capacity to manipulate global trade and deliver greater control to an international governing body. One that still gives greater power to multinational corporations rather than the individual nations themselves. Now, these advantages suggest that the TPP might be a good deal overall. I totally get that. But here's why it's potentially dangerous. Now, the biggest criticism lodged at the TPP is that it was negotiated in secret. Now that the negotiations are over, the agreement is available in its entirety. However, this wasn't the case during the crafting of this trade deal, where the only publicly available information was released through the leaks and suggested that the main beneficiaries of the new TPP rules will be and you might have already guessed this, multinational corporations. While ordinary citizens and even most elective representatives had no idea what the fuck was going on with the TPP, multinational corporations enjoyed much greater access to the inner workings of the negotiation process. And that's pretty apparent when you look at the wording. Just one indication of corporate influence is the so-called investor state dispute settlement process, which creates secret tribunals that hear lawsuits brought by corporations over legislation that cuts into projected corporate growth rates. In theory, this seems like a good idea because it protects foreign investment against possible unfair treatment in ordinary courts that may not appreciate uh, foreign bodies coming in and trying to uphold some sort of sanction against the previously crafted legislation. But in practice, this will mean that, for example, like Budweiser could sue Vietnam for requiring that all beer sold in Vietnam include a health warning for pregnant women on the label. When in reality, no one should be drinking Budweiser, let alone pregnant women. And states offering public health care could face lawsuits from big pharma and insurance companies that claim that national health care systems restrict their investment opportunities. 
Now, the TPP essentially grants corporate interests veto power over sovereign nations' domestic economic policy. Or, in the very least, they create a system where the corporations can demand substantial monetary compensation, as in the case of a trial going on right now with French multinational corporation Viola after Egypt raised its minimum wage. And another worrying TPP provision involves patent and copyright restrictions that do not allow for genetic drug manufacturing, which will essentially grant big pharma monopolies, leading to higher healthcare costs in nations that desperately are in need of access to affordable healthcare. Drugs that seek to treat cancer and malaria or AIDS, among other diseases, will be less accessible to individuals. And lastly, Something that you care about, the internet. The TPP's scary relationship with the controversial SOPA and PIPA acts will impose copyright restrictions allowing corporations to pursue all manners of copyright offenders, even those with no intentions of distribution. ISPs will be tasked with policing and shutting down any matter of copyright infringement, meaning that government and internet service providers can search, pursue, and impose heavy criminal sanctions on you for, let's say, like oversharing your favorite Game of Thrones episode, even uh, if it's just with your friends, and even if HBO itself doesn't have an issue with it. And the vaguely worded clause on fair use will restrict free information distribution in unprecedented ways. So is the TPP really just about mapping out trade and tariff rules to promote economic growth for all participating nations? Or is it more about pushing this pro-corporate restriction backed by United States onto all nations surrounding China in an effort to force the Chinese hand into abiding by U.S. standards? Because it sure seems like all of these tariffs and regulations and environmental and labor protections seem like just a smokescreen for the true purpose of the TPP, which is basically to undermine national sovereignty and grant multinational corporations unfettered access to markets across the globe while simultaneously protecting those corporations' profits from any infringements imposed by the citizens of those nations. In other words, to inoculate corporate profits from the threat of democracy. We just heard clips featuring Counterspin speaking with Karen Hansen Kuhn about the secret negotiations of the TTIP. Tom Hartman talked with Laurie Wallach about how the TPP will kill American jobs. Credo Action put out a video featuring Elizabeth Warren breaking down why we need to stop the TPP. The Majority Report discussed Hillary Clinton's disavowal of the TPP. Act Out had a commentary about the TTIP. The National Sierra Club put out a video about the importance of stopping toxic trade deals. Democracy Now! discussed Clinton's appointment of a pro-TPP, pro-Keystone XL, pro-fracking politicians to head her transition team. And finally, we just heard an additional explainer about the TPP from the Young Turks. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. No voicemails for today, so just thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism 
awesome segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I don't have an updated list of my Climate Ride donors, as I usually do. Uh, Things have been a little bit hectic around here, but the fundraiser is coming to a close at the end of August. So for what will be very close to the last time, I am doing a fundraiser bike ride from Bar Harbor, Maine to Boston. It'll be a five-day bicycle ride. It's called Climate Ride. You can donate to support my ride. Uh, We've already reached our uh, financial goal, though I'm trying to reach a total of 200 individual donors, and we haven't quite hit that level yet. So if you'd like to add, even if it's just five bucks, get your name on the list, uh, just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the giant summer fundraiser banner. And in addition, uh, we're doing sort of a two-for-one deal. If you want to support this show at the very same time by becoming a member, we're giving away uh, t-shirts and hoodies to people who sign up uh, as a member and donate a minimum of $25 to the Climate Ride as a little incentive. So all of that is coming to a close very soon. Thanks to everyone who has already donated and anyone who wants to get in at the last minute. Now is the time to do it. Uh, I will be thanking everyone by name. Uh, you know, I have been thanking people by name. I will uh, make sure that everyone gets listed by the time all of this wraps up. Now, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, just my personal situation, that there was a death hanging over my family. I just wanted to thank everyone who either sent, I just wanted to thank everyone who either actually sent a kind note or just had kind thoughts in my direction. Uh, It was very much appreciated. The update on that is that everything essentially uh, went as more or less expected uh, which means that this is not a particularly easy or normal time for uh, my family and I, but uh, everything is essentially as it should be. So we are proceeding from here as we all must. Uh, the last thing I want to leave you with today is uh, some thoughts about today's actual topic. You know, as you heard today, there were a few comments about what may be our last chance to stop the TPP. It is a real possibility uh, that this trade deal will pass during the lame duck session of Congress after uh, the election in November. So you can help fight that possibility by signing up at uh, the Flush the TPP Coalition's No Lame Duck Uprising. That's a petition, and you can get involved with their upcoming actions across the country. So tell Congress, don't duck democracy at flush the TPP and using the hashtag no lame duck and hashtag stop the TPP. As always, we are looking long term for things like this. So make fighting for social and economic justice part of your theory of change by getting involved with organizations like Public Citizen at citizen.org and Citizens Trade Campaign at citizenstrade.org. Leading up to this election, we of course want to give you the resources, knowledge, and inspiration to get involved and stay involved beyond November because there is a lot more to winning a progressive future than just voting. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can 
always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained